Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fiona Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. Good to have you back. Uh, What news from while I was gone? Well, when you were gone, we decided to change the format completely, so we're not going to bother with books anymore. (laughs) Is it all singing or dancing? uh, It's mostly celebrity, very, very short celebrity interviews and sport we thought we'd go for. (laughs) Sounds, Sounds perfect. Sounds ideal. Good. Yeah. So I was in Cornwall, uh, not at the G7 event. I was. I, I thought you. I thought you'd secretly no. gone as part of G7. Weirdly, I mean, I, I wasn't invited. You popping up. I wasn't invited, which is a shame because I mean, I have loads of ideas. Uh, <laughs> but no, I wasn't invited. I was in Cornwall. I was. I was mooching around. I went to um, went to an independent bookshop, which is on theme given mm-hmm. given this week being Indie Bookshop Week, and we will talk all about that later in the show. But the weather has been warmish and quite wet. So I'm wondering whether your allotment has gone bananas. Have you even grown bananas, perhaps? No, no, no. No, the danger is it's all very well. I mean, I'm glad about the rain. But I'll tell you who else is glad about the rain, and that's slugs and snails. Oh, of course. And blighters. I know, exactly, the blighters. <laughs> and the point is that we just recently put in a load of tender young plants. Oh, dear. So I'm just... My fingers are crossed, basically. It's that's a harsh, what's harsh lesson in life. Yeah, that's nature. Oh, dear. Well, um, in the meantime, while I was gone, I believe you've had lots of submissions from people wanting to bang the drum for their favourite independent bookshops. That's right, isn't it? Yes, we've got lots uh, lots and lots of names to um, of bookshops to mention. And I'm sure we're actually we're just scratching the surface. Uh, it's brilliant. Well, great. Well, so, well, because as I said, this week is the week, Independent Bookshop Week. Coming up later in the show, we will share as many of those nominations as we can. Uh, we'll also pick through this year's Summer Book Special, in which writers, including Joyce Carol Oates and Andrew Motion, tell us what they are reading or planning to read over these at least 
traditionally drier, hotter months. Uh, but first, Lucy, over to you for our first item. This week, we're looking at tech, artificial intelligence, and the future of work. Opinion within the AI community itself is divided as to how advanced AIs or robots will be and when, and whether they will be able to do what humans do, maybe even better or just differently. But everyone does seem to agree that the way we work will change, and hence our economic views, as well as our social, ethical and philosophical ones, will have to change in turn. We have a piece this week co-authored by Jane Humphreys, Professor of Economic History at LSE, and Benjamin Schneider, a DPhil candidate at Oxford. Jane can't join us today, but we're happy to say that Ben can, and he's here to talk these issues through with us. Ben Schneider, many thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you say in your piece that there have been these dire predictions of AI taking over the world and, and also the world of work for decades. But since the publication of this one particular book in 2014, those predictions have been more frequent. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and its, and its central idea? Sure. So, so this book is uh, The Second Machine Age by uh, Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee, so two researchers from MIT. And the, the basic contention of the, of the book was... Um, there was then and has since the since the book was published been a lot of progress on artificial intelligence as you mentioned and that essentially what this is likely to lead to is a world that is relatively good for people with what economists call high skills or high levels of education but the people with what they refer to as ordinary skills are likely to lose out so the traditional way that economists tend to think about this is people in many sorts of routine jobs are likely to to suffer from from AI. There's research that that shows that large um, swathes of the population in rich countries as well as uh, developing countries are in those sort of routine jobs, and their their work could be threatened by this new technology. Right, and so uh, people have have taken that idea on board, haven't they? And this has it's led theorists on the left and the right. I was struck by you saying this unusually. They're both. Um, some of them are proposing a system where everyone gets a universal basic income, a UBI, though obviously they have different views on public spending within that proposition. Um, how and why do they think that might work? The basic idea of universal basic income, to the extent that it's motivated by automation and technological change, is on the left, it's broadly seen as an opportunity to sort of free people from a compulsion for needing to, to have to go to work or to be forced into low quality jobs, precarious work, and so on. On the right, what it tends to be seen as, especially sort of the, the libertarian and, and technologist right, is this is a way of ensuring that people can continue to maintain a decent standard of living so that we can also embrace the new technologies that might be replacing jobs. So you can have a world in which, yes, we have lots of automation. And there are both sort of macroeconomic and human or quality of life living standards benefits from that. But it's essentially a, p- a political trade-off whereby you then ensure that a whole bunch of people don't say, well, we, we need to sort of fight against this technological change because it's going to replace our incomes. So you can you can sort of see there that they're both very, obviously very different motivations in the world that you would end up with on the other end of that, uh, if it were to come into to practice in either case, is also very different. As you say, they're they're very they're very different positions, but they're both positing it as a way as a way of dealing with the AI and technology as a sort of possible solution to what might happen. I guess. Yes, that's right. I mean, there is also at the same time a strand that's more on the left of saying 
this is a way, yes, in which we can accommodate a world in which there's lots of technological change, but also that the, the, the point that I mentioned before about fundamentally it gives workers more bargaining power is another element on the left where you know it's beneficial because it will give workers the opportunity to turn down work that they don't want to do. Is, is there any, I mean, I suspect the answer is no, but is there any consensus as to how governments might determine when it's the time to introduce these sorts of policies? I mean, is it is it to do with the percentage of people affected, the sorts of sectors feeling it most, the total value of income lost? Is there is there a general sense of, of that? Not at this point. I mean, most of the academic research and sort of policy research that's been done on UBI is is largely about determining what are the effects on sort of human well-being and importantly for economists, whether it has an impact on incentives to work. So economists and um, one of the authors that we'll talk about is uh, quite concerned about basic income, making people think I no longer need to have an occupation because the government is giving me this constant stipend. Therefore, I will withdraw from the labor force. And there are arguments also related to that that are not purely economic, but about the social value um, and sort of feelings of well-being that one gets from achieving things in a job. So there's there's a whole bunch of sort of arguments about that. But at this point, there hasn't really been a uh, a consensus on which triggers uh, would be appropriate. Um, let's move on to the the books that you've reviewed for us, two rather different books, aren't they? Um, why don't you tell us about the first one, which is by Roger Bootle, who is a well-known and respected economist, but not an AI specialist. Um, how, do, how does he present this case? So as you say, yeah, Bootle is, uh, I think it's fair to say, center-right um, economist, uh, occasionally writes for the Daily Telegraph. He's been known, for example, for predicting the UK's exit from the ERM in 1992. But in this book, he admits at the start that he's sort of going into territory that he is kind of less familiar with. And a significant part of the book is describing the natures of some of the, the potentials of automation technology. But also he spends a lot of time talking about the limitations and the pitfalls, the things that robots are not yet able to do and may in fact never be able to do. So I think that that really informs a lot of his more skeptical approach compared to the automation theorists who are saying the power of AI with pattern recognition will wipe aside a lot of jobs. He's much more skeptical about that. And that sort of in in part probably informs his more small c conservative sense of, of the policies that would be appropriate for it. So basically he suggests we'll sort of pivot towards a world in which many people have more leisure time and have more, let's say, passion projects and spend less time in um, formal employment. Basically. And does he, and his economic approach to that is also quite a traditional one, isn't it? So one concern about having a huge wave of automation is there's potentially a big impact on demand. So once you basically replace a whole bunch of people with robots, where is the demand for purchasing services and goods going to come from? Boodle is skeptical that it's going to happen, but he says if it does happen, we can think of maybe existing uh, approaches in the policy toolkit. Government can can step in and increase demand, and that'll raise the demand for labor, and you'll you'll sort of pull people out of um, what would have been unemployment as a result of of uh, automation. You know, broadly, when we when we look at um, a lot of the, the the books that have been written in this area, people tend to both sort of academic researchers and also um, technologists tend to take a perspective of either I'm going to sort of take something off the shelf, and that's Boodle's approach, sort of what do we know, what does macroeconomics 
given to us as, as policy solutions? What do we know from labor economics of um, ways in which it's possible to, to train people and place people back into jobs? Um, and then sort of apply those to, um, to the present day. And then there's another set of approaches and the, the, the second book that we talk about in the article is, is more along the lines of the second one, which is we're going to sort of try and imagine a world in which we don't think about just those, those off-the-shelf approaches to um, potential problems of automation, but we're going to imagine um, a different endpoint, basically. Mm. So this second book is by Aaron Benanov, isn't it? And as you say, it's got a less traditional outlook. It's basically, I suppose, I mean, it's some of them are facing backwards and some of them are facing forwards, and there's different problems. That problem with facing forwards is that is that even the people working at the cutting edge of AI at the minute, they're not really agreeing on what AI will be able to do, are they? But this book suggests uh, some pretty radical restructuring, doesn't it? What, what do you think of, of his analysis? Right, so maybe just to, to frame it a little bit, Beninov is a historian of basically labor and, and unemployment. And uh, he his his contention here, this this it's a very, very slim book um, that's based off of uh, a couple of articles that were published um, in the New Left Review a few years ago. He essentially challenges the basic premise of the automation theorists or technologists, which I mentioned before is essentially you have either happening right now, it's already happening or coming down the pipe is a huge amount of automation that will repl- is replacing or will in the future replace large swathes of jobs. He says, just this is not happening right now. And we can see this because productivity of labor has not been rising as quickly as it would need to be to, to sort of to explain the phenomena that we can see in the economy. And this is broadly accepted across economics in terms of the, those labor productivity statistics. After the Second World War, there was a period of about 30 years in Western Europe, um, to some extent also in Eastern Europe and the United States, where there was, uh, and Japan as well, where there's high labor productivity growth so this is the sometimes referred to as the golden age of capitalism. And then since about the 1970s, growth has been much slower of labor productivity. Beninov says, you know, if there's all this technology that's coming in and replacing workers right now, and if that were the explanation for why unemployment is higher than it was in that, in that post-war period, that doesn't fit because productivity isn't rising enough to, uh, um, to be essentially uh, dispensing with the need for, for those workers. So instead, what he argues is going on is that there's a relationship between output growth, so all the stuff that is made or services provided in the economy, and productivity growth. So the technologists are saying there's this huge spurt of productivity growth. You don't need as many workers to make the same amount of stuff or a slightly increasing amount of stuff. Um, And that's why demand for labor is low. That is why underemployment is higher. More people are working on precarious or uh, short hours contracts. Beninov says that's not the explanation because labor productivity isn't high enough to explain that relationship. Instead, output growth is too low. This is because we're not effectively, we are not demanding and producing as much as much stuff. And the demand for labor is the fundamental problem. He think, does he think that the boom in the golden age was, was because there was this rise of manufacturing? And um, that's not happening anymore, and, and and nothing else has replaced it. It's an automation is not replacing it either. It's not it's not like for like. Right, right, exactly. So he says the growth engine of capitalism is the manufacturing sector, what we sometimes call the secondary sector. So where you take stuff and turn it into other stuff. One of, there are a couple of reasons for this, but one of them is that this is a part of the economy where it is relatively easy to achieve productivity growth. So you can. In the Industrial Revolution, you can create a factory, 
put a bunch of machines in the factory and you you have rapidly increased productivity through a combination of the machines, the power and labor discipline. And then that sort of innovation can be rolled out across different sectors of the economy. When you have an economy that has pivoted as rich countries have towards the service sector, it's much harder to do those sorts of productivity enhancing or to take up those sorts of productivity enhancing innovations. So in the period after the Second World War, as you suggest in the question, you do have a lot of this investment in new factories. A lot of it's happening in Europe. So rebuilding in um, continental Europe, especially, you have lots of investment in capital stock, as economists call it, um, new factories and machinery. That sort of burns itself out in overcapacity. Then there's also competition coming in from um, developing countries. So manufacturing becomes essentially unprofitable because there's overcapacity and there's not continued investment in that part of the economy. As workers then shift out of manufacturing, it's harder for society to achieve the same rates of productivity growth in the service sector. So it's harder to industrialize, say, um, making a cup of coffee for you in the morning than it was to uh, industrialize and achieve high rates of productivity growth in car manufacturing because it's not sort of standardized in the same way, basically. Yeah, so it's hard. It's basically, yes, it's harder to get an AI to, as you say, make you a cup of coffee and have a little chat with you in the morning. Though, I mean, you know, who, who knows, that might be possible. There's also a theory, isn't there, that says that as new technologies develop, new jobs will develop, i.e. that the job of a coder or a programmer or a web developer didn't exist, you know, let's say 20 years ago. And now there's lots of them, but that's not proven yet, is it? That's the trouble. This kind of takes us to the heart of a lot of the debates or a lot of the parts of this debate that, that try and look at history to explain or predict what's going to happen, uh, what's happening now, what's going to happen in the future. We have had instances of disruptive innovation in the past. You know, large, you know, hundreds of thousands of workers in, in Britain were displaced by different technologies during the Industrial Revolution. But then eventually there were new jobs and or... There were parts of the economy that grew because of people who remained employed had were employed on higher wages and had more purchasing power. So the sort of the structure of the economy shifted. And in the past, we've always managed to basically create enough jobs to eventually to employ the people who, who, who lost out. That generally has worked, but the time horizon could be such that maybe it's 30 or 40 years before we get back to the same level of, of aggregate employment. And what happens to what happens to the people? What happens to the places where those lost jobs were concentrated? And I suppose I, I suppose as well, another thing that has changed, you know, there may have been job creation, but one of the things that's changed certainly since uh, the post Second World War period that you were describing earlier is the the sort of place of power within that. It's concentration in in ever fewer hands, right? So uh, Ben and Av warns that unless workers take power from the current owners of capital in, you know, this new world that he imagines will be very unequal. The vast majority will be in insecure work. I mean, that's quite a heavy caveat, isn't it? Yes, yes, very much so. And uh, part of, maybe I should just mention, I think I might have hinted at this before, but part of his case is essentially that, you know, in trying to explain contemporary levels of lack of labor demand, this shows up in different ways. It can show up as unemployment, but it can also show up as people being part-time for reasons outside their control um, or low wages or poor working conditions. And the kind of zero hours, that kind of thing. Right, exactly. And exactly. instability, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. And 
kind of as, as one explanation for that, in addition to the lack of labor demand that he talks about, is the weakness of, of organized labor unions. It vary in different countries to what extent this is an issue, but you know, sort of the last 30 to 40 years, um, in general, organized labor has become much weaker. And that is, that is another factor that he argues is, is uh, sort of playing into the story. But yeah, Thea, as you, as you suggest, you know, what he is proposing, imagining here is um, effectively to say, we don't know um, what the potential of these technologies will be, but we should not think of a world in which we have to sort of travel through an automation pathway to reach a, a utopia. Instead, the world that he proposes doesn't require or requires very limited use of computer technology and so on. Um, it doesn't need to be automated, but it's essentially a, how will be the right way to put this? Maybe sort of a global commune in which everyone does some amount of necessary labor, whether it's carrying labor, cleaning in your local community and so on. And then in return for that, everyone receives communistic way, sort of whatever they, whatever they need to survive and then can uh, use the rest of their time as they see fit to pursue uh, activities that they think contribute to their personal development and human dignity. Yeah. So as you, I mean, I think as you say in the piece, that that sounds great. But how do you get there? Right. You, yes. Yes. <laughs> what's um, the route by which you get there? And and Beninov is not explicit about it, but it's not terribly hard also to to read between the lines of of what he's saying. And um, there are a few points in the book where he says sort of something along the lines of power has to be taken away from, um, I forget the term that he uses, but it's essentially, he essentially means capitalists. Mm. I think asset owners is the, is the phrase that he uses. Right. So that's it. That's it. That's an awful lot to pack him. Do you know what I mean? That's yes. it in terms of a plan. Yes. <laughs> if you go, okay, I think we'll do this and let's not rely too much on automation. Let's take power out of the hands of the capital owners. And then we'll all share, you know, I mean, that's. Yeah. And then on Thursday, we'll. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's a big step there. Um, are you, I mean, in a way, both of the books, sort of have a utopia in view, don't they? Bootle seems to be um, a sort of gradual progression that would be understandable throughout history and, and Beninov's, as we said, rather different. Are you convinced by either of them? I, th I find um, Beninov's uh, description of the present somewhat more convincing, but uh, as we've just been discussing, I think his uh, route into the future is we might say somewhat underdeveloped um, or not fully dealing with the implications of how, how one would try to get there. I think in some ways, the story that Boodle tells is um, appealing for people who are slightly concerned about rapid and destructive social change. And there's certainly some elements in it, the sort of specific elements of it's likely that people will, jobs will shift more towards being more human to human face-to-face -face interactions because so far, we haven't developed any robots that can replicate the sort of value that one gets. And I suspect that many people have sort of been reminded of the, the value of it in the last year uh, of having an interaction with another human being face to face. So in that sense, the sort of description of uh, the types of jobs that people are likely to have, what they're, what they're likely to look like. I think that that's a fair description, but I think his, I think Boodle's um, skepticism about the potential for technology is, I would be very cautious about that. Um, in part, this is because, uh, as I've said, I, as an economic historian, there have been various times in the past where people have predicted what's going to happen in the future based on their knowledge of what has happened in the recent past and then been proved 
extremely wrong uh, because events take a turn that, that they weren't predicting. I mean, maybe the, one of the most uh, best known examples of this is Thomas Malthus, who says in the end of the 18th century, you know, we can't really increase the standard of living because it's a function of how much land you have. Um, and that's happening right at the point in history in which there's an industrial revolution. And, and then you have uh, a transformation of the world where you can have both population growth and um, increasing standards of living. So I would be, I would be skeptical about uh, the idea that um, the world in 50 years is going to look very similar, which is essentially what Boodle suggests to the one that we have now. I think there's there are many avenues in which you can, can travel, and there's certainly scope for, for significant automation in, in, in many areas of, uh, of the economy. Well, uh, we will have to ask you back in 50 years, and then we can work out what, what, what worked and what didn't. I, I'd be delighted um, to, to come back then. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, ben Schneider, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Still to come on the show, what are some of our writers reading this summer? We'll find out. And as it's Indie Bookshop Week, which bookshops are you listeners flying flags for? And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer. Exclusive, that is to our podcast listeners for just five pounds or five dollars or the equivalent in whatever currency you use you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital so you'll have the paper turning up on your doorstep every week where you'll find all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast alongside dozens of other pieces as well as getting access to everything online and in the app edition Uh, should you find yourselves waiting for a bus without your print issue handy. The digital access also includes the website and app archives and the historical archive, which goes back to 1902. So you can look up Walter de la Mare and T.S. Eliot and read what Virginia Woolf made of D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. There's original writing by Roland Barthes, Saul Bellow, John Updike, Muriel Spark, Chinua Achebe, Patricia Highsmith, Umberto Eco, and Susan Sontag, and poems by Hardy, Auden Frost, Plath, Larkin, Brodsky, Paul Muldoon, and Anne Carson. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we're joined by another TLSer, Alice Wadsworth, to wend our way through the results of this year's summer reading symposium, let's catch up with the submissions for Most Treasured Independent Bookshop. Having launched the appeal a couple of weeks ago, I then scuttled off into the undergrowth. So Lucy, it's on you to fill us all in, please. Well, we've had um, lots of lovely suggestions. We uh, got a, a tweet from Books in My Bag, who I think run um, Independent Bookshop Week. So we got a big hello back to them. Uh, and we got lots of recommendations, which, um, you know, which reminds me what a wealth of independent bookshops we have and how lucky we are to have them. Mostly in the UK, though we do have a couple from further afield. So this is from, um, on Twitter, it's Mpush and Tabini. And he says, uh, my favourite indie bookshop is called The Book Lounge at Rowland Street in Cape Town. It's the place to go for new local, continental, international books. Always the first to get new books. He said their online services are fantastic and deliver nationally with an efficient courier service in South Africa where we don't really have the benefits of Amazon. Also has an amazing podcast called The Reader's Community and it's generally a wonderful place. So that's a good shout out, isn't it? Yeah, and I should say, in fact, that I actually went there <laughs> a few years ago. Did you? I that's did, so yeah, impressive. When I, was in Cape Town. I know, it's wow. very surprising, isn't it? Uh, and yeah, is it so good? I went there. It is, it's lovely. I mean, it's a very impressive uh, looking building. You just see it and, and it's it's pink and white. It's got a kind of high ceilings and chandeliers once you get inside. And I remember it being pleasantly cool. Uh, for for a start because the ceiling fans which was was very welcome uh, indeed but yes so I've been there so I, I can second uh, Mr Tabini's uh, recommendation there. Well that's brilliant. Icon Books the publisher sent us um, a list of lots of places that they like um, and it would be nice if we could stop and talk about all of them but there's too many so I'm just going to kind of reel them off rattle yeah I'm going to rattle them off I think there's Dial Lane Books which says I think it says it's Ipswich's only indie bookshop uh, Red Lion Books which is in Colchester S Reed Books in the Lake District Read in Home Firth Read I think there that's the verb i.e. come and read a book Ebb and Flow Books which is in Chorley Book Corner HX, which means Halifax. I know this. This is in the Peace Hall. Ah, so you know it from your from your days. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that bookshop actually, but I know the Peace Hall very well. The Peace Hall's uh, amazing, uh, and they're clearly doing very well. Book Bar UK, which have got so they're in London, and they've got they kind of bring want to bring people together through books, and they've got a thing they call Shelf Medicate, 
They do bespoke. Well, they get some kind of prize for the name. That's very good, isn't it? That's bespoke book prescriptions. They do that. Uh, Houseman's Books, uh, Radical Booksellers in London, Pages, Cheshire Street, uh, Independent Bookshop, selling books by women, trans, gender diverse writers, sister shop to Pages of Hackney, Owl Bookshop in Kentish Town, uh, Primrose Hill Bookshop, Category is Books, which is an independent queer bookshop in Glasgow, Portal Bookshop, Sci-Fi, Fantasy, LGBTQIA, in that's in York. Porty Books, which is at the beach in Portobello, Edinburgh, which I love Portobello, that sounds brilliant. And Lighthouse Books, um, which is, the they call themselves Scotland's leading politics bookshop, also in Edinburgh. Um, and I, I, I talked about Golden Hair Books, which is another one in Edinburgh. And we've heard from them, haven't we? Yeah, they said hi as well. So hello back to them. Hello. We also got some internal recommendations from TLS editors, which I promised I would mention. Our own George Berridge recommended Libraria, which is off Brick Lane, apparently. Burley Fisher Books on Kingsland Road, I think. Uh, the Winchester Antiquarian Bookshop. Leakey's in Inverness. I know Inverness a little bit, and I've never been to Leakey's, and I can't believe I've missed it because it's huge, apparently. Um, Alexander Leisler, who came on uh, a few weeks ago to talk about... Um, do you remember what what's the name of what you talked about? Oh, hold on. Floating points. Floating yes, points. Yes, floating the, points. Uh, was the was the producer, and he did that beautiful album. So he's recommended Bookman Bookmongers in Brixton, City Books in Hove, and Pequod Books in Berlin. So just nipped outside the UK again there. <laughs> um, and did you see about um, Self Made Hero? Mm. You know the independent publisher. Um, they specialise in graphic novels. Did you see they have um, this initiative? So they've launched mm-hmm. their own challenge, which is a, a decidedly more challenging challenge than ours, I think. Um, they're asking people to draw their favourite indie bookshop. Um, and the idea is to draw it and post it on Twitter or Instagram, uh, tagging the bookshop and adding at self-made hero and at books are my bag. So um, the winner's art will then be published in postcard form. They did this last year, um, and obviously it was such an enjoyable, uh, such a popular thing that they've, they've brought it back. The outcome, the winner will be announced at some point in the summer. But it just sounds great, doesn't it? It does. It sounds brilliant. It's the, it's one of the things that really, really makes me wish I could draw. Exactly. I think Mr Ntabini should have a go at drawing the book lounge, uh, seeing as I, <laughs> I know it to yeah. be such an impressive looking place. So there's a challenge on the challenge. Now, in a rare instance of synergy on this podcast, now that we've heard about all these wonderful bookshops, we're going to talk about some books that you might want to purchase from them or from other bookshops. Every year, we ask a selection of our writers to tell us what they'll be taking away with them to read on holiday. And this year, as with last, in spite of the fact that still no one is really going anywhere, we're asking the same question. Perhaps, in fact, the absence of actual travel makes the mental travels offered by books all the more essential and appealing. Joining us now to talk through this summer books feature is Alice Wadsworth. Hello, Alice. How are you? Hello, Thea. I'm well, thanks. How are you? I am all right. Thank you. Um, having read this feature now, do you do you have a reading list as long as both arms put together? Yes. It was already as long as that, so now it's all the rest of my limbs as well, and then some. Oh, dear. <laughs> Good, though. Yeah. <laughs> It's a good list to have. The thing to do is go to an independent bookshop and buy those books. Exactly. And exactly. now I have many to go to, thanks to your recommendation. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, you see, it's all joined up thinking here. Um, so, Alice, why don't you start us off then? Uh, whose metaphorical suitcase uh, do you have your eye on? 
Well, I was really interested in Barbara J. King's metaphorical suitcase. Um, straight from the beginning, because The Secret Social Lives of Reptiles sounds absolutely brilliant, a non-fiction book on um, kind of science writing about family lives in turtles, snakes and crocodilians, which looks quite interesting in the way that you know how a lot of people looked into with octopuses recently and squid and seeing a lot more intelligence in those areas that we didn't see before. That seems to be also what's happening with um, Jay Sean Doody and Vladimir Donetsk's book here. And I suppose also because we tend to, I mean, to generalise massively here, people tend to be less, you know, gooey about reptiles than they do about nice fluffy mammals. So I wonder whether we don't sort of, uh, maybe they get a bit of a raw deal out of that. We don't really think of them as, as you know, lovely sociable creatures. They really do. I mean, maybe it's the way they blink. <laughs> maybe it is the way they blink. <laughs> <laughs> or the fact that Komodo dragons can both poison you with their bite and kill you with the fact that they're just giant old dinosaurs which are filled with muscle. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm quite obsessed with reptiles and on it's become quite a big thing with a lot of people following Instagram accounts of different reptiles. That's become really? quite a strange lockdown trend that I've definitely got involved in. I suppose, I suppose if people are around their houses a lot more and they have reptiles in, in tanks or whatever it is that you keep reptiles in, <laughs> then they'll be, well, they will simply be observing them more. So I can see that they would become even more interested in something that they were interested in already. And they are surprisingly cute when they're being fed bugs and things. Mm. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> but I think, I think you're right, though, Alice. Nobody thought, everyone thought octopuses and squid were just weird yeah. things. And it turns out octopuses are totally brilliant. Geniuses. And uh, I, I'm one of, you know, every, everyone watched My Octopus Teacher it was incredibly moving. She basically gave him a hug. I was in bits, frankly. Yeah, and then when his son <laughs> carries it on, the little oh. baby octopuses. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I, I think it's something I've always found quite interesting, how we have started off thinking that intelligence is such a preserve of just humans and that human intelligence is the best, most rational type of intelligence. Um, and it's made us fail to recognise a lot of really interesting ways of thinking of different animals until we actually got around to observing them properly. Exactly, which is probably why the reason that we we have become more culturally attached to certain animals, like I said, the kind of the cuter, fluffier mammals, is because we have a clearer uh, kind of identification with them, whereas we wouldn't like to identify ourselves so much with with reptiles, maybe. Yeah, yeah, the ultimate other. Another interesting bit I just I just saw from um, Secret Social Lives of Reptiles that's fun is they can communicate with each other while still in the egg. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. That's advanced. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Well, that does sound like a very like a very wor uh, worthwhile uh, recommendation. You'll have to read it, Alice, and then come back in the autumn and just tell us all about the Secret Social Life of Reptiles. Yeah, well, we could have a kind of a reptilian fact every week. Uh, I would love that. That would be brilliant. <laughs> Um, <laughs> brilliant well that's that sorted then um lucy why don't you give us something from from your uh whose whose suitcase you've been admiring yeah um i think i would like to steal mary norris's bag um because she she wants to read a book called hearing homer's song the brief life and big idea of milman parry he's a a, a classicist milman parry was a classicist 
because there's a rather kind of, uh, as she says, an academic noir story about how he died, sadly, very young. But he's called, I don't know anything about any of this, hadn't heard about it before at all. He's called the Darwin of Homeric Studies. Mm. Um, and I don't know what the big idea is. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I, I want to know very intriguing. What, what the big idea is. He, 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 he won a great big grant to write the book, so he, he's clearly... Um, I've just actually I've just seen it's from 1902, so it's not breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out it was a little while ago, uh, but just I just think that's that I I would like to find out what the big idea is. And her other choice is a swim in a pond in the rain by George Saunders, um, his recent one, um, which is about Russian literature. I don't really know anything about Russian literature either, but um, I I've read a little bit about this book, and I would. I would like to to have a read of it. It's um every it comes highly recommended. I'd also like to read Lincoln and the Bardo, which I I didn't manage to do weirdly. I did, and I really enjoyed it, especially the first part. I thought it, uh, I think it sort of petered out a little bit for me, but I loved the first part, which is set in the cemetery with this kind of kind of choral element to it. Whose bag are you gonna nick? Um, well, I. I think my first choice, and I'm going to come back to Alice and 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 Lucy again because I think we have two hands, so we get two suitcases each. Uh, but my first my first suitcase would be Andrew Motions. I think he mentions this book called Out of the Cage by Carol Jacobi, um, and it's he says it's several books in one. It's subtitled The Art of Isabel Isabel Rawthorn, um, who lived between 1912 and 1992. He says his main achievement is to do justice to this compelling but neglected artist. And I've never heard of her, which is no mean feat, he says, given that a good deal of her work has either gone missing or is held in collections unseen by the general public. So I don't feel too bad about not knowing about, about her. But the book, he says, also gives a wonderfully lively picture of the mid 20th century European art scene and a differently engrossing sense of Rawthorne's perf- personal life mapping onto, um, among other things, her relationships with Epstein, Giacometti, Constant Lambert, Alan Rawthorne and Francis Bacon. So what he means, I suppose, by it being several books in one is that it's both, you know, biography and also, he says, a major contribution to the history of of recent painting and uh, and the circumstances in which it, it, it evolved. So he says clever and fascinating and necessary. And it sounds like all of those things. Um, but yes, one more bag each, I reckon. So, um, Alice, who else's will you take? I would love to take Lamorna Ash's bag. Um, again, another delicious nonfiction book. This one is The A to Z of Pasta. Differently delicious. Yeah, differently <laughs> delicious than the reptiles. Um, over 120 essential pasta and sauce recipes. I didn't exhaust pasta during lockdown, and good pasta feels like a holiday thing for me. Haven't yeah. been anywhere, and I was you can't just, exhaust pasta. Yeah, so that sounds like an absolute dream to read. Um, and then they've also added Akawaki Amezi's Dear Centurion on Faber, um, which is their first work of nonfiction, which is a memoir about the, their unfolding sense of self, uh, which I think should be really interesting. I'm really excited to read that. Yes, I've, I've heard positive noises about that one too. Um, and Lucy, one more for you. Am I allowed one more? That's good. One more bag, not one more book. You're allowed to do what, what Alice sneakily did there and bring in a couple. Okay. <laughs> I kind of only, well, I will read the other one. I'm sure it's interesting, but I want this for, I want Muriel Zaga's bag because she it wants to read Laurent Binet's Civilizations 
uh, actually she's French, so she probably read it in French, uh, but it's been it's been translated now. Um, great big counterfactual novel. The Vikings discover America. Columbus's expedition fails, she says, and the Incas conquer a bewildering new world, Europe. And I love everything of Laurent Binet's that I've read before. And this sounds completely different. It sounds very, very rich, doesn't it? It really, it, yes, it sounds amazing. I fear that I might not know enough history to know how counterfactual it is. I'll just go, oh, is that what happened? <laughs> That's a fact. <laughs> yes, well, so I'll have to keep it in my mind that it, it, it is counterfactual. Um, she's also um, got in her bag Kubrick's Napoleon, the greatest movie never made. Um, but I don't. I, I'm, I want another Napoleon book. Can I just? Can I half inch another Napoleon book? You can, but before you do, just tell us briefly about this um, this Kubrick one because I, it sounds fascinating. It I've does. Never heard it does it. sound it fascinating. fascinating. No, you're absolutely right. Um, so it's a record. Actually, having said that, maybe I'll just keep this book because it does sound really interesting. A record of Stanley Kubrick's single-minded fascination and identification with Napoleon's legend. So he was going to make a, a film about Napoleon. It might have starred Jack Nicholson as the emperor, which is kind of feels a bit counterintuitive, but okay. And <laughs> Charlotte Rampling as Josephine. Um, and then when MGM pulled out at the last minute, Kubrick went on instead to make a clockwork orange. So, Gosh, I can't believe they pulled out. That's the sort of counterfactual. How was it never? It? How was it never? Yeah, how was it never picked up again? I just that would have been that would have been a hell it. of a film, wouldn't it? Yeah, Kubrick's yeah. Napoleon. Uh, okay, Thea, what's your what's your bag for your other hand? Well, I'm going to I'm going to use my other hand to point at a bag, but I'm not going to pick it up. Um, but I would like to point to Claire Loudon's um, because I have these books already, so I don't want to pick it up and, and, and waste my energy in that in that sense. But I'd like to point to it because it resonates with me, as I suspect it will with others who, who turned back to George Eliot after the, the, the kind of nudge of her bicentenary. Um, of her birth in late 2019. So Claire Loudon is rereading Middlemarch, which I did last year. And she says, um, when I was 18, exactly half a lifetime ago, she uh, she read it for the first time then. She read it in hungry, dizzying gulps. Ne nearly perfect, I remember thinking. Shame about the preposterous initial conceit. In what universe would beautiful young Dorothea ever fall for crusty old Casabon? What a pleasure, she says, to return to it at last this summer. Though this time I'm taking slower sips. I'm only a few chapters in, but already I'm sober to find that Dorothea's misplaced passion now seems all too plausible. And I suppose it's just that thing, you know, that interesting thing that we've discussed a lot on this podcast about how a book can change utterly as you grow and, and as a reader uh, and as a person. And it chimes again with uh, something that BJ Silcox brings up in her uh, in her contribution, she's writing about how she's unpacking all of these boxes of books that have been in storage for years. And she says, the boxes are a time capsule. Uh, there are old versions of myself stored among them too. And I'll reacquaint myself with these ghost girls. So yes, I'm pointing to two, but not picking them up. <laughs> mm, it is. Um, and luckily Middlemarch, I've only, I think I've only reread it once as it were. And there's, whenever you reread there's a slight thing where you think I hope it's as good as I remember yeah yeah there's a fear isn't there yeah and there was no after after about two sentences it's just like oh great <laughs> I'm only at the beginning and I've got the whole thing exactly. and yeah the second time I read it I thought about it very differently I think let's turn to our own reading then now let's go with you Alice first um well I to start with one that kind of set me off on it um I started reading care work for the second time uh, which is about disability justice uh, and came out 
quite a few years ago by Lakshmi Piepsna Samala Senior. And it's looking at networks of um, mutual aid and care. And that led me on to um, a more recent one, which is Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feel Feeling Good by um, Adrian Marie Brown, which is a continuation. Well, it's not a continuation. Um, it builds on disability activism and um, activism of self-care around communities of care um, and also uses a bit of prison abolition philosophy and the black feminist tradition and it helps us rethink the ground rules of activism I suppose a lot of people think that maybe activism or even volunteering isn't something that's necessarily pleasurable enjoyable it's more a duty um, and Adrian Marie Brown kind of shows how politics can feel good and how what feels good also has a complex politics of its own um, and I thought that that works quite well in conversation with care work as well. It does. That sounds very interesting. Um, makes me think of a line um, in Eugene Grace Wurtz's contribution where she says fiction has been difficult to read during the pandemic, perhaps because our current times so surpass imagination. Um, I found the exact opposite. I've lent, lent much more deeply into fiction, I think. But what you seem to be suggesting with that choice there, Alice, is that perhaps you found yourself leaning more towards um, non-fiction and, and maybe uh, books that encourage you to to act, to to do something. Yeah, I think um, I'd been reading a lot of fiction, in particular short fiction, which I'm always enjoying reading. Um, but yeah, with a lot of the things that have come up over lockdown and a lot of the discussions everyone's been having, I think with summer reading, that's when I feel I can really take time to spend a proper long amount of time on a, a set of non-fiction books that I can really have a conversation with and so yeah I wanted to get more in depth with, behind a lot of the things I've been thinking about. Mm, concentrate that sounds great well done. <laughs> um, Lucy tell us what tell us what you're going to be reading. It's, I find it a bit difficult to predict because by in lockdown I don't, I don't know if I've gone not either way but I seem to become even more scattergun so I read you know one new thing and then something that I've read 15 times before and then a bit of non-fiction I'm not sure if there is a pattern the only pattern is that there is even less pattern than usual which is actually really good because I've, I've read a lot of things I wouldn't have otherwise and uh, old and new actually I read war and peace for instance it's really oh, wow. good, it's quite good <laughs> I don't it? know if you've heard of it <laughs> wow it turns out but uh, but I don't mean I'm not showing off to say oh look at this great big book I read but I just I just sort of hadn't before and yeah. it was there and it had always been there and, yeah. and so I just you know and I've read lots of other stuff as well lots of uh, well I don't know you know science fiction and non-fiction but actually what I would like to they're both TLS contributors which this just sounds like an absolute stitch up job this this is basically based on Sudhir Hazarising's um bag I would like to read his book about Toussaint Louverture which I should have read already I wanted to read and I haven't yet and I would like to read that just won the Wilson History Prize so hooray for that that's Black Spice yes, Curse isn't yeah it? I would love to read that and I'd also read, like to read the book that he recommends by Ruth Skur our own Ruth um, Napoleon A Life in Gardens and Shadows not least because it's got gardens in it gardens and Napoleon well no one can do those, <laughs> those, those two things and when they align even more so. I think I think that's fair. You're allowed both of those. I Thank think. you. Very much. <laughs> what about you? <laughs> um, well, actually, I'm I'm going to nod back to uh, a book that our, one of our contributors um, has flagged as well. Lucasta Miller mentions it. it's the biography of W. G. Sebald, Speak Silence in Search of W. G. Sebald. So it's by 
Carol um, Angier, and that's published in August. So, I mean, it's the first biography of Sebald, which seems to me, it seems quite odd given the heft of his legacy, especially in our days of, you know, genre bending memoir inflected writing. I just don't think anyone for me has come close to articulating and giving literary expression to, you know, the pleasure and pain of emigration and chosen exile and cultural isolation and all of those things. Yes, yeah, so 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 that and well, in the meantime, I'm still deep in Henry Green. Um, oh yeah, do you like yeah, it? Yeah, I do. I mean, Loving, which was mm. the one that was published in 1945 about servants sort of trapped in an Irish country house during the Second World War, uh, was brilliant. It had one of the best final lines I've read in any novel ever. Um, and I'm almost through Living, uh, which is the one that's set in the Forges of Birmingham. It's kind of famous for its language. He left out all the conjunctives. Uh, to kind of mimic the the accent. There's also a weird recurring motif of dead birds, mm. um, <laughs> oddly. Peacocks in loving and poor pigeons in living. So I look forward to seeing if this continues in the next book of his, which I'm going to read, which is Party, Party Going. going you, yeah, albatrosses probably. I, no, I can't remember. <laughs> no doubt there are birds in it. <laughs> right. Um, well, I mean, no, I mean, I, I think I'll probably just have to read Party Going because for all I know, an albatross could be the bird that gets it. There, uh, but there we go. That was our three woman bid to kickstart the economy and get everyone spending money on good things in good places. Alice, thank you very much for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. Uh, our pleasure, as always. And that is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go also to Benjamin Schneider. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.